Well, everyone has a favourite lost and found story. I'm sure you do. I could tell you uh, about the time I took Zachary, aged three, to Legoland in Windsor. And I turned round at the end of one of the rides and realised he'd disappeared. Now, every parent has moments like this. It's not a great feeling. You basically have one job if you take your child to Legoland by yourself. It's a massive dad fail to return home without the son you took. I was about 30 seconds away from going to DEFCON 1 and initiating full nuclear protocol by informing a Legoland attendant that I had lost track of my three-year-old. Then I found him around a couple of corners playing quietly next to a giant Lego horse, completely unaware that he was lost. What followed, of course, was joy, relief. And I guess you may have similar stories. It seems the longer the thing or the person is lost, the greater the rejoicing when they are found. And that's what we've been seeing here in Luke chapter 15. We've been exploring the greatest lost and found story ever told. In fact, there are three of them, aren't there? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost sons. But of course, they're about an even greater single story of God seeking and saving the lost. Now, Jesus has been causing a stir by befriending sinners and tax collectors, the lowest of the low, the collaborators, the, they're Jewish, but they're helping out the occupying Romans. And the religious Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they just don't get it. Verse 2, look, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What does he think he's doing? If he is who everyone seems to be saying he is, well, he should be welcoming us, the Pharisees, and eating with us, not with people like them. And Jesus has told us these two parables about valuable things. Sheep, very valuable. If one wanders off, he says, you go after it, even at the expense of the one or all those left behind. If you, if you lose a coin, which the coin he's talking about is worth again, a day's wages, you don't just write it off to experience. You get on your hands and knees until you find it. And when you find your coin or your sheep, you get your friends and neighbours together and say, do you know what happened today? It's the best thing. I found what was lost. Now, the focus in those first two stories is on the seeker who seeks and finds, and then on the party that follows. But do you notice something interesting? In both of those first two parables... It is said there is rejoicing in heaven or in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. But taken by themselves, the first two stories about the sheep and the coins don't quite make sense as an illustration of that because how do sheep and coins repent? The sheep just wanders off and gets lost. It's down to the shepherd to find it. The sheep isn't kind of making his way faithfully back home when he's found there. He's just lost. And the coin, what is the coin? The coin just sits motionless down the side of the sofa or wherever it is. Neither of them could be said to repent. And yet Jesus says it, says it twice. It's not that there is rejoicing in heaven over sinners, full stop. There is rejoicing over sinners who repent. So what does that mean? That's the question that the first two parables leave us with. 
How does repentance fit as Jesus teaches the Pharisees why he's welcoming and eating with sinners? Or, or put it like this, if you are a sinner and you know you're a sinner and you know that you're lost, what, if anything, do you need to do in order to be found? So this third story sharpens the focus. We've gone from 100 sheep, 10 coins, now two sons. Now it's not hard to see that the father in this famous third parable is God, or maybe more sharply because Jesus is telling us this is Jesus welcoming home. We'll we'll see that. And then the identity of the two sons becomes clear as Jesus tells the story. And it breaks into four parts. And you can see it on the back of the yellow notice sheet, four headings there as we go through. So first, from verses 11 to 19, the younger son's law-breaking rebellion. The younger son says to his dad, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, what is he saying? What's he asking for? He's asking for his inheritance. Now, maybe in the 21st century, that particular question has lost some of its sting. But in the culture of Jesus' day, this is an insulting request. Because when does inheritance come? It follows death. And the son means, in effect, Dad, I've weighed it up and I value your money and your stuff more than I value you. In fact, put it like this, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now give me the cash. Can you see that in this request that the younger son makes, there's actually a picture of how every human being has treated the God who made us. We say, God, you're the creator. We we like the stuff that you've created. We want that, but actually we don't really want you. And we might justify it with, you know, philosophical arguments that we think disprove God's existence a few things that we've nicked from Richard Dawkins or whatever. But the bottom line is that it suits us to act as if God were dead, as if he were not there. Because like the younger son, we think that that will give us freedom. So what happens to him? Off he goes into a life away from his father. And verse 13, he has a ball with all this cash. It's champagne in a different restaurant every night of the week. It's fast cars. It's beautiful friends. Toilet paper made of gold. It is a thing, not in the parsonage, I assure you. But then one day he wakes up and all the cash is gone. More than that, there's also a famine in the country where he lives, verse 14. So he's far away from home with no money, nothing to eat. So what does he do? Well, he looks for a job, any job that he can, he can get. And he ends up, verse 15, with a job feeding pigs, which in the Jewish culture, of course, is the lowest of the low. It's absolute rock bottom. He thought he was free, but it turns out the freedom that he had was the kind of freedom that you get if you climb to the top of the shard and jump off. You know, you're saying, I'm no longer hindered by the constraints of safety barriers and the constraints of the ground beneath my feet. I'm free. I'm free as a bird. But as Sheriff Woody frequently has to tell Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story, that's not flying, it's falling with style. 
And it doesn't take long to realise the end point is utter disaster. Sometimes people grow up in a Christian home and they think, I can't wait to get away from all this. And what happens is that it all seems to be going fine for a while, but then suddenly a relationship fails. The exams don't go as planned. The long-for career doesn't materialise. Friends turn out to be a letdown. Injury puts an end to sporting dreams. And if we know deep down that we're living like the younger son, but everything seems to be fine, it could just be that we're still in verse 13. We think we're flying, but really we're just falling with style and rock bottom is coming. It might be soon, it might only be right at the end of what to the world looks like a very successful life. But then it will be that we realise that the things we've been living for don't actually help us in the face of death. And they don't help us with the biggest problem that we face, which is the fact that we've turned our backs on this loving Father, this God who made us. But here's the thing, this wasn't the end for the younger son. He comes to his senses, verse 17, and he realises that anything would be better than this. Even going back to his father to be his slave would be better than feeding the pigs. At least he'd have food to eat. So he rehearses a speech to say to his father. So look at verse 18. Here's his speech. I will, get, I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, on the surface of things, you might think, well, maybe he's got it all together now. Maybe he's figured out that he's done the wrong thing. But he's got a plan, and now he can sort it out. And we might think, well, here we go. This is the repentance that we've been looking for after verse 7 and verse 10. But, but, but here's the thing. That rehearsed speech in verse 18, the first part of it is a quote it's a quote that Jesus' hearers, the Pharisees, if they listen in on this, they'd have, they'd have recognised this. Do you know who else says those words? Father, I've, uh, those words, I've sinned against heaven and against you. If you're following our Old Testament reading plan, we actually read this on Tuesday this week. This is Pharaoh's response to the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. He says to, to Moses, I've sinned against heaven and against you. But when he says those words, it's anything but genuine repentance. Now, of course, the younger son could be using the words differently and mean it, but this is meant to cause alarm bells to sound. Dig a little deeper, you see, and think about what the son is suggesting in verse 19. What he's saying is, I can pay this back. I can sort this out. I've been a lawbreaker, and that's led me to rock bottom, I can now fix this by becoming a law keeper. And I can serve my father to earn back my position in the family. Now, from everything else Jesus says and everything else the Bible teaches, we know this isn't how God works. You can't earn his love. So this in itself isn't a perfect model of repentance. But we're about to find out what actually matters when sinners return 
to God? Is it all about finding the correct form of words? Is it all about getting your theology completely straight in order to pass the repentance test before God will have you back? Well, verse 20, we move now to the Father's costly love. The Father's costly love. What do we expect from the Father at this point? It's pretty much the opposite of what happens. We expect a great big dose of, I told you so. I told you this was a bad idea, son. I told you not to take the money, and now look what you've done. You've wasted it. You come back with nothing. But while he was still far off, while the son is rehearsing that kind of flawed speech over and over in his, in his head as he makes his way home, verse 20, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he runs to him. Now, I was talking to Moses about Middle Eastern cultures. And in the Middle Eastern culture, respectable men don't run. In fact, Moses put it like this. He said, in that kind of culture, people run to the respectable man. He walks in a stately way and expects everyone to kind of bustle around him. Imagine the stares. Imagine the muttering from the neighbours as this respectable landowner runs to greet the rebellious son. What shame he's brought on the family, this son. Everyone's muttering to each other. What shame he's brought to his father. And, and look, look, what, what is this old man doing now? We've never seen anything like this. And the father will, but the father will run for his son. And he runs and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And quickly the son gets going on his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can even finish the speech, his father is giving orders to his servants. Verse 22, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. What is he doing? Well, far from accepting his son's attempt to pay him back for what he's done wrong, do you see what he's doing? He's bearing the cost of his son's rebellion himself. Both in his total loss of dignity and running through the village, but also with the new robe, with the ring, with sandals, with a massive party. Does it matter that the son seemed confused in his repentance Determined to earn his father's favour? Not for now. Presumably there would come a time when the father would lovingly clarify those things with his son, but for now there's a party to throw. Jesus is showing us this is what God is like. When the lost are found, there's a party. And that means that for any of us today who know that we are lost, who know we've been ignoring God, who know we've been taking his gifts, but ignoring him, the giver. If we know that that's us, we can come back. We don't just need to wait till we've got our story straight. Just come. How will God receive us? Will he make us pay him back? Will it be a life of miserable slavery, servitude? No, he's paid the cost. 
Jesus died on the cross to deal with our sin and our rebellion. The price has been paid for turning our backs on him. He will welcome us and there will be a celebration. And you can do that right now. You can do that today. But there's a massive sting in the tail, isn't there? And we turn then to the older son's law-keeping rebellion. The older son's law-keeping rebellion. Verse 25. Do you, know, do you know the story about the Sunday school teacher who asks the Sunday school, who was sad when the prodigal son, the younger son, came home? Who was sad? And little Johnny in the front row, his hand goes straight up. And he calls out, the calf! The fattened calf was sad. Now maybe he has a point. But the roast beef and the party make the older son very sad indeed. First he hears music, verse 25. And then he hears the news, verse 27. Your, your brother is back safe and sound and your dad is throwing a party. And he's angry, and he refuses to go in. Well, why is he angry? Well, well, this is Mr. I always do my homework, isn't it? He gets top grades, he gets great reports, he's competitive, but he usually wins. He's won employee of the year, several years running, he always gets the bonus. He would never dream of running away from his father or spending his cash, because he knows that's not what you do. He's a model son, or so he thinks. And he's thinking, it's not fair. Now, if you're a sibling, you will know that feeling very well. And when his father comes out to get him to join the party, that's what he says. You've never given me even a small party when I work so hard for you. Be slaving away, he says. And then this rebel comes back from squandering your money on prostitutes. You throw the biggest party ever. But the thing is, in those words that he says to his father, he reveals something utterly tragic. Which is that despite the fact that on the surface he looks like a model son who has never put a foot out of place, underneath he's really no different from the younger brother. Can you see why? Well, look at, look at verse 29. The way he thinks about his father is that he has to, he's someone who has to be obeyed like a slave obeying his master. And you see, the reason that he thinks he needs to do that is no different from what his younger brother wanted. He wants his father's stuff. I've worked hard and I deserve a party from you. I deserve your stuff. That's what he thinks. The younger son wanted to get his hands on his father's stuff through blatant rebellion and running away. He becomes a lawbreaker. The older son wanted to do it through conforming and doing his duty in order to tick the box that says he deserves to be treated well. He's a law keeper. But he's no different from his brother in that he too is rejecting the relationship with his father. And he's just doing it in a way that satisfies the expectations of family and society. The tragedy is that neither son is really interested in the best thing about their father, which is, which is that he simply loves them. 
Think of the Pharisees listening into this. They'd have been shocked by their younger son's rebellion, but then pleased to hear of his desire to pay his father back. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly what he should be doing, they'd be thinking. But then the father's extravagant welcome would have been utterly bewildering, and now they would be cheering on the older brother. He's got a point, they'd be thinking. But here's the thing. Churches are full of older brothers. You don't have to be a biological older brother to be like the older brother in this story. You just have to be someone who thinks, I keep the rules, I live a good life, I make sure I read the Bible and pray and turn up at church and I do my bit on the rotors and I help with the youth and children's work and I'm faithful in my singleness or in my marriage. I'm not a rebel. I'm not like those guys who never darken the door of a church. You know, there's a lot of people in this dark world, this dark city who need the gospel, who need Jesus. Do you know, I met some the other day and I felt such pity for them. But also, I was quite thankful that I'm not like them. And you know, being a Christian isn't exactly a barrel of laughs, but I'm doing it right. And the tragedy is that if that's how we think, do you see what the older brother's doing as he thinks this? He's cutting himself off from the party. There he is standing outside. And that will be what is true of us as well, if that is what we persist in. And as we do that, we're missing the final thing that we need to see here, which is from verses 31 and 32, the Father's generous invitation. Don't miss the geography of what happens here, where everybody is. The Father, first of all, has gone out to seek his lost son, coming back from farther, far away. But do you notice now the, fa- the Father has gone out again? Do you see? Do you see what he's done? He's left the party to go after the older brother who frankly is now causing a bit of a scene and and once again damaging the reputation of his father with the neighbours. It's like a family bust-up in the middle of a wedding. You just don't, don't do that. No. Sweep it under the carpet. Pretend it's not happening. Keep smiling. Certainly don't leave the room to go after the ridiculous older brother who, let's face it, is, um, is just insulting his father and the family by refusing to join in. But he goes out. He went out for the younger son, and now he goes out for the older son. He leaves the party behind, like the shepherd leaving the 99 behind on the hillside, for his older, law-keeping, rebellious son. Verse 31, my son, the father says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In other words, you've completely missed the point, my son. The best thing about this father is that he loves both his sons. So of course he celebrates when one comes home. To the Pharisees listening, Jesus is saying there is room at the table for everybody. There's room for younger brothers, for sinners, for tax collectors. There's room for older brothers who think that they don't need to repent. The fact is, older and younger brothers are both the same. They do need to repent. They need to come home. They need to come back in to realise their father's love can't be earned or bought, and it can't be lost or spoiled. 
This is your brother. Do you see that verse 32? Not just my son, but your brother. These sinners and tax collectors, they're not another species. They're human beings, just like you are. So what's he then saying to us? He's saying lawbreakers and lawkeepers are welcome at this party if they will just come back and come in. So what are we as a church if we're satisfied when only those who've outwardly got their lives together can feel comfortable amongst us? I don't know if that's true. I hope it isn't. But let's make sure it isn't. We need to make the most of our links with our mission partners like St. Clement's Manchester and London City Mission working in very different contexts from ours. Let's see what we can learn from them about reaching the lost and the poor and the vulnerable as well as the outwardly respectable and the sorted. We're going to do that with London City Mission, God willing, after Easter in a series of three <clears throat> central small group meetings where they're going to train us in evangelism. Let's make the most of that opportunity that we have. Let's be the kind of church that would surprise or even scandalise people by the company we keep. We had an evening recently about same-sex attraction and the church, and you can listen on the website if you missed it. But people who are LGBT, for example, they might assume that a church like ours would have no welcome for them. But Jesus can be our example, can't he? he? He isn't affirming or condoning what the Bible calls sin when he eats with sinners. He calls tax collectors to leave their life of tax collecting. But in doing that, he welcomes lost people home. And do you notice he's not afraid to risk his reputation with the religious establishment as he does that? As the story ends, the older son is left with a choice. Before it was the younger son who was the outsider, cut off from his family and his father's love. But now as the story ends, who is the outsider? Who's cutting himself off from the party? It's the son who thinks that only those who deserve a party can have a party. Now, we don't know how the story ends. We don't know whether he accepted his father's invitation and went in. But that throws the question then back on us. Are we going to hear God's open invitation to us and to anyone who will return to him? Trusting not in ourselves, but simply in him? Are we going to come in and enjoy the party with our loving Father? Are we going to do all we can then to ensure that others can do the same? Let's have a moment of quiet and I'll lead us in prayer.
This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Father, we praise you that the best thing about you is that you love your children. And whether we tend to struggle more with law-breaking or law-keeping, we pray instead that we would return to you and know your love and welcome. Help us to do that even today, to come, come and receive the life you offer when we trust in Jesus who died on the cross for us. And may we then extend that same welcome to the world around us. Not waiting for people to get their act together before we can offer them your love, but offering the kind of love and welcome that Jesus did. As he calls sinners to come, to repent, to follow him, and to know your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.